All right, our scripture today is from Esther 4, uh, 12 to 17. And it's a pretty rare book to read out of, um, so uh, I have to find it. <laughs> uh, 775, 775 in, your, in your books. Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, Naturally, uh, chapter 4 is on 770, 780. Sorry. Uh, 4.12-17. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to this royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Um, a lot of you know that I am terrible at coming up with titles for things. Um, I straight up forget to come up with a title for my sermons probably 90% of the time. And if you check your bulletins, I forgot to, to do it this time too. <laughs> uh, but we're starting a new sermon series, and just yesterday I came up with a title for the series we're doing. Let me explain. Charles Dickens wrote this book called Bleak House, and he has this amazing knack for making characters that are so vivid and real and kind of funny. One of his characters in this book is named Mrs. Jellybee, and the sole purpose of her entire life is doing philanthropy to send impoverished Englishmen to Africa as missionaries and to grow coffee. She thinks this is the best idea ever, because both the Englishmen and the Africans will benefit so much, and she'll feed the hungry and spread Christianity. It'll be all great. But she also happens to be a mother, and she has a bunch of children that nobody takes care of because she's so focused on this project in Africa. The passage where she's first introduced is hilarious. The main character comes and sees a rundown house that sees, has the name Jelly Bee on it. And it, I'm missing a page, sorry. Oh, my bad, okay, my bad. <laughs> and the first thing that he sees is this poor little child with his head stuck between some iron railings on the stoop with a bunch of people trying to pull him out. He walks inside, and the other kids are poking at each other with brooms. And as he walks in, he has a hard time not stepping all over the other kids because it was dark. The main character assumes that nobody's home, and the kids are all alone. But finally, Mrs. Jellybee, Jellybee appears, just as you hear a huge crash as another kid falls down the steps and bonks his head several times. And this is how Dickens describes her. Mrs. Jellybee whose face reflected none of the uneasiness which we could not help by showing in our own faces as the dear child's head recorded its passage with this bump on every stair. We counted several, seven stairs besides one for the landing. She was a pretty, very diminutive, very plump woman of 40 to 50 with handsome eyes, though they had a curious habit of seeming to look a long way off, as if they could see nothing nearer than Africa. We expressed our acknowledgments and sat down behind the door where there was a lame invalid of a sofa. Mrs. Jellybee had a very good hair, but was too much occupied with her African duties to brush it. The shawl in which she had been loosely muffled dropped onto her chair when she advanced to us, and as she turned to resume her seat, we cannot help but noticing that her dress didn't nearly meet up the back. 
Basically, Mrs. Jellybee was so enamored with her projects in Africa, which failed miserably, by the way, that she didn't have time to actually take care of her own kids. People familiar with that story have come up with a term for this, which is Mrs. Jellybee syndrome, which is where a person becomes completely engrossed by some good thing they're doing for people far away, whether political activism, charity, missions work, whatever, that they completely forget to love the real people sitting right in front of them. So that's why I'm calling this series Fixing Mrs. Jellybee Syndrome. <laughs> in the last nine months that I've been with this congregation, my sermons have focused mostly on that big cosmic plan that God has to save the world from destruction. First, we started with a 15-week series on the whole story of the gospel, all the way from Genesis to Revelation. Then we had another 10-week series on the teachings of Jesus. And then there was this whole stuff about worship and Advent and Christmas. In other words, it's been about big stuff. It's been about how we need God's presence to survive and not destroy ourselves. It's been about how God became a person and suffered for us so we can be set free from slavery to sin. And how God has been working for good and be sorry. And how God is making a world where sin and sadness and evil are a thing of the past. We focused in broad terms on what God is doing through the church in this couple thousand year time between the first and second comings of Jesus. And all that stuff is really important because it gives us an idea of what the heck we're doing when we come to church and when we call ourselves Christians. It tells us that the world, what the world is and where it's going, and I hope that has a real impact on your life. But sometimes it's really overwhelming to look at the world from something like a 10,000-foot perspective. You manage to see where the whole world is going, but it can be a little bit harder to see yourself from that perspective, because from that high up, you're just a little tiny speck. You can say something like, sure, this is what the church, that whole global kingdom of God is doing, but what does God want me to do? And that's the really benign problem with looking at the world from that point of view. What's really bad is when you look at the world from the perspective of this whole story of the gospel and think, wow, there's this long, big story of thousands and thousands of years and what, that is taking place. How could God possibly be doing something important with little old me? Even worse, you could think something like, looking at the world from 10,000 feet up, it really doesn't look like it matters so much how I treat tiny little individuals so long as I'm working for the good and big systems of power and justice. And that's where Mrs. Jellybee really comes in, Mrs. Jellybee syndrome really comes in, where you become so focused on the whole story of the gospel that you lose your own place in it, or even mistreat people around you because they look like tiny little specks to you because you're living 10,000 feet up. It sounds ridiculous, but it's one way that we have been trained to think in this culture. In the last couple decades, the world that people interact with has gotten a lot bigger. You used to only, only talk to people in your hometown and the people you've met in person, but now you're in contact with people all over the place. It used to be that the only news that you saw had to do with the things in your community, but now you find out things going on in the Middle East and China and all over the globe. All of that can combine to make you think that you're just a tiny cog in the middle of a great big machine and that all that really matters is who's in control of that machine. For all the virtues of democracy, one of its dangers is that they can encourage you to think in that way. Since everyone has a little tiny bit of power over the whole system, it can make you think that what really matters isn't whether you love the little old people in front of you, but whether you're on the right side of making the machine better. It might happen that you're not generous with your friends or the people you meet on acting wisely, or sorry, my bad. 
because what you really think should happen is that the machine should be fixed so you don't have to be generous. Meanwhile, good friends can be really nice to you, but express some kind of opinion about the big stuff like culture and politics, and you're tempted to think that they really are a bad person. As if what really matters, and what really says who a person is, isn't all the years of loyalty and love, but that one isolated opinion. Young people like me are particularly susceptible to that trap. We can have all kinds of idealistic thoughts about how the world should be fixed, but not paying any attention to helping the people in our own lives. We can love the idea of humanity, but hate actual humans. And that's where Mrs. Jellybee syndrome goes from a charming and funny thing to as something really ugly. Because it can cause you to have a lot of contempt for real people and leave you really lonely and angry and sad. So this series is going to come down a bit from the big overarching story of the Bible and go back down to the small stuff and how the whole story of the gospel affects the way we make decisions today and our own everyday life and our relationships with the real humans we come into contact with. Now that we've focused plenty on the forest, these next couple stories are going to focus on the trees. We're going to be going through some of the, my favorite stories from the Old Testament, which focus on acting wisely and foolishly in the little areas of people's lives and in their interactions with real people. One of the really important themes through these passages will be about how you act when you're really not sure what God is doing with you. You have a broad idea of what God is doing in the world, but you have to take that story and boil it down so it actually tells you what your own story is and what God is doing in your own life. And I think it'll be really useful for our church, which is going through its own time of uncertainty about the future and what God is doing with us. And I think the book of Esther is the perfect book for that kind of uncertainty. And it's really one of the weirdest books in the Old Testament. And I think that kind of contributes to why you don't often hear it preached. For one thing, the name of God is never even mentioned in the entire book, which kind of makes it hard to interpret. Is the book even about God at all? Plus, the book may, doesn't make any obvious reference to any other book of the Bible. They don't even mention the Torah at all, which is really rare for the Old Testament. And all this made some people w wonder why Esther is even in the Bible. One thing I, I don't, didn't really know until really recently was that the ocean has a bunch of mountain ranges in it. And if you're just sailing along, you'd have a hard time noticing it. But in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, there's a bunch of, of mountains that extend from the seafloor all the way up about a mile and a half. Which, by the way, was, I was surprised and a little bit scared to learn. Like, that's how deep the ocean is. Isn't that kind of weird? <laughs> Anyway, at certain points, those mountains actually manage to peak out above the surface of the sea, and those form islands like Iceland and the Azores. God in the book of Esther is kind of like that. If you don't think to look for him, you might have a hard time noticing him because he's never actually mentioned. He doesn't quite manage to peak over above the ocean. But there's certain points in the book where you can notice him if you're looking closely, because at those points, he's really just barely under the surface. The two point parts of that book that he is closest to the surface will be the two sermons that we're working on. Of course, that begs the question of why the author decides to leave him under the surface. All the other books of the Bible mention God and say what he's doing, but why not this one? That's why I think the book of Esther is really useful. Because it's a book that mimics the experience of our own everyday life. How, how many times during your, during your life has God come and directly revealed himself to you so that you have no, no doubt about exactly what he's doing? Probably pretty rarely, right? 
But all through the Bible, you see that kind of stuff happening. And the reason for that disconnect is pretty obvious. If God came to reveal himself to you, you'd probably write about it and tell everyone about it. People would be telling your story to each other for years and years. But if you just have a normal Tuesday, or if you made some important decision you're not sure about, you're not going to write a book about it that's passed down from generation to generation. Keep in mind that the events of the Bible encompass about 2,000 years of history. Taking over a time period that long, it kind of made sense that the Bible would have that many big acts of God. We don't really see big miracles in our own daily lives, but neither did they. It's just that they had 2,000 years for it. But then there's the possibility that the Bible becomes less relevant for us. It becomes possible that the Bible tells you a whole bunch about how you should live in the times where God makes his presence and intentions perfectly obvious, but then doesn't include the times most of us live in, where it's kind of hard to know what God wants from us. The book of Esther is written for people like us, who don't have a narrator floating above our heads saying exactly what we should be doing and what God wants from us every moment of every day. Instead, the characters of Esther are a lot closer to us. They find themselves accidentally blundering in themselves into a really difficult situation through no fault of their own, but have no real guarantees that things will work out and no real instruction about what they're supposed to do about it. The story is set during the exile, where a couple of Jews are living in the capital city of the Persian Empire, far away from their homeland. The Queen of Persia is dismissed for disobeying the king, which means that there's an opening for the new Queen of Persia. The king sends out all kinds of messengers to see if they can find a beautiful young woman for the king to marry. And they find Esther, a Jewish woman who was raised by her uncle Mordecai. Esther was so beautiful that the king loved her so much that he decided to make her his queen. But Esther didn't make it known that she was Jewish, because that would have hurt her chances. Meanwhile, Haman was this big government official who was super vain and ambitious and wanted everyone to worship him. One day, Haman was walking along the streets, and everybody bowed to him because he was super big and important. But Mordecai, Esther's uncle, didn't bow down because he was a Jew, and he wasn't going to bow down to anyone but God. So Haman, being a terrible person, decided he wanted to convince the king not only to kill Mordecai, but to kill all the Jews, because Mordecai offended him. Haman actually forged an order from the king that all the Jews would be killed really soon. Mordecai, of course, felt really bad about that, so he tried to see if he could get Esther to do something to convince the king to reverse the order. And that's where our story takes place, at the most famous verse in the entire book. Mordecai is talking to Esther after Esther, Mordecai fails, or finds out that Haman wants to kill all the Jews. And Mordecai is trying to get Esther to use her influence to stop the plan and save all the Jews. But Esther is afraid, because just walking into the palace and asking something of the king can actually get you killed, even if you are the queen. Mordecai is asking Esther to take a big risk. So Mordecai says, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And I think a lot of times when we read these verses, which are absolutely beautiful, we overestimate how certain and faithful Mordecai is. We think, wow, look at the kind of role model that Mordecai is. He knows exactly what God is doing and really believes he has a role in it. He knows that Esther was put here for such a time as this. You see, see things like for such a time as this showing up on throw pillows and stuff like that. 
But that, uh, but that whole story is only half true. Because the very first words he uses are, who knows? Who knows whether you've been put here for such a time as this? He's not saying, Esther, surely God has put you here to do this. He's saying, I don't know for sure what God is doing. You don't know for sure what God is doing. But it looks like it could be that you're in this position for a reason. And maybe God wants you to do this. But verse 11 says, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so they may live. In other words, Esther is risking her life based on Mordecai's instructions. I don't know about you, but I'd have a hard time risking my entire life based on it kind of looks like God is doing this in your life. But we so often forget that that's really all we can ask for. For all that we've tried, humans don't actually live 10,000 feet up so that they can see everything that's going to happen in the future. We live here, on the ground, and we have to make tough decisions and take risks based on incomplete information. We take all that we know about the gospel, all the things that we think God is all about, all the things we know about ourselves and our situation, and we take the leap of faith in doing what we think God is calling us to do. And in all this, there very rarely are guarantees that you're doing the right thing. I'd always been skeptical, skeptical about people telling me what God was doing in my life or how they thought God was leading me. My question in my head was always, how do you know? Do you really expect me to completely change my life based on an educated guess? And of course the answer has to be, I don't really know. You don't really know, but this is probably the case and we have to act on it. In fact, if you follow Mordecai's argument carefully, he isn't using some kind of holy reasoning. He isn't saying, I had a vision from God, or even, this is what the Bible says you should do. Instead, a lot of his reasoning is what we would call secular or practical. Basically, he says, look, Haman's out to convince the king to kill all the Jews. That includes every one of them all the way up from hundreds of miles away in Jerusalem to us right here. If you just let this happen, you're going to die too. So you may as well try and do something about it, even if it is scary. Again, it might strike you how secular this reasoning is. But people didn't used to call this secular, but wise and prudent. This kind of cool, rational reasoning was considered a virtue of God. If you read books like Proverbs about wisdom, you might be struck by how rarely they talk about God. And that's not because God isn't important. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, of course. But it's because when you're making an important and difficult decision, there very rarely is an angel that comes down and tells you what to do, or a specific Bible passage that addresses your exact situation. You might pray and get some real comfort about your decision, but even that's pretty rare. All you can do is whatever you can do to seek God's will, and then you just have to pull the trigger. But that's the kind of wisdom the book of Proverbs says is holy and wonderful. It's the kind of secular reasoning that Proverbs 8 says God created the world with. And that kind of wisdom really is holy and wonderful. Any kind of reasoning that leads people to bravely do their duty in service of God is holy and wonderful. It's the very wisdom of God that became incarnate in Jesus Christ. And it's the kind of wisdom with which God rules the world. God created us so that we wouldn't know everything that comes next. And that's beautiful. Because it means that we have to trust God not only to take care of us if we know what it means, um, that, but also to guide us to make the right decision, 
and figure out what we should do in the first place. It's an amazing thing to do something out of love when you know how it'll all turn out. It's something so much more beautiful and mysterious and glorious to do something out of love and obedience to God and for others when it comes with real risk to yourselves and when you never know, really, if you did the right thing. We can do things that are so much more beautiful because we don't know how they'll turn out. I heard a story third-hand from an electrician one time, so I might have gotten the details completely wrong, but I'm using it anyway. He said, I think, that when you're using it, working with electricity, you do all you can to be possibly, you do all you possibly can to be safe. That there's no getting around the fact that when you flip the switch, you're taking the risk of hurting yourself. Like, sure, you can use your electrometer, but who knows if the electrometer is faulty. You can rack your brain to make sure that you've done all the precautions you need to do, but you never, you'll never be 100% sure that you've checked everything, because by definition, you never really know what you've forgotten. So if you want to get anything done at all, you're going to have to take that risk, no matter how small, and flip the switch or plug it in. There's no getting around it. He said at a certain point, you've done all you possibly can do to make it safe, and so that all that's left is to say a short prayer as you plug it in. And as much as we might be afraid to admit it, that's how we live so much of our lives. We have big opportunities and lots of risk, and we may never know if we're making the right decision sometimes, especially when they're tough decisions. But if we ever want to do something in service of God, we have to plug it in or flip the switch. And if we made the wrong decision, that's okay, because God has forgiven us for so much more than the times when we tried our best to serve him and failed. So when we look at the world from 10,000 feet up with our Mrs. Jellybee syndrome brains, we can assume that we'll never have to do something without knowing 100% how it will work. Especially for people with white-collar jobs, we think we can manage the whole world and make it all come out right, 100% guaranteed. But taking risks and making mistakes for those you love and for God is just a part of our life when we're living down here with real people. And it's honestly a beautiful thing. So take a look at your own life situation using some wisdom and prudence. Look at your advantages and disadvantages, the things you're excited about and the things that break your heart, your skills and your shortcomings, and see if you can figure out what God is calling you to do. More often than not, that's the way that people are called, not by a sudden appearance on the road of Damascus or an angel visiting. Because who knows whether God has put you in this situation for such a time as this. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you've made us to trust you, and that you haven't given us a perfect understanding of the future, but a cloudy vision of the next step. Help us to take the leap of faith to trust in you with the things that we love, so we can look more and more like your obedient son, who gave himself in love for us. Amen.